Listening to sermons as we go about our days, driving around or doing our work, is a perfect reminder of our Lord's promises and of His mercies. This is the mission of Upper Room Media. To make the Word of God accessible to anybody and everybody. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Many happy returns to you all. Uh, this past week was Jonah's fast, and this coming week is the last week uh, before we begin uh, the Great Lent. So Great Lent will begin not tomorrow, but a week from tomorrow to following Monday. Uh, we read today in the psalm preceding the Gospel, For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Honor and majesty are before Him. Strength are be- and beauty are in His sanctuary. And this psalm emphasizes to us our role and the importance of our role in honoring the Lord. So we'll contemplate together how we can honor the Lord through four means. By obeying His commandments, by respecting His house, by revering His sacrifice, and finally by serving His children. In the Gospel according to St. Matthew chapter 21, we read this uh, parable that the Lord gives. But what do you think? A man had two sons And he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, The first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, the tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. And the passage continues and says, For John came to you, in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. So we see here, through this example, that honoring the Lord and obeying his commandments is not about lip service. It's not about what we say, but it's about walking the walk, not just talking the talk. It's about where the rubber meets the road. They actually act and behave and do what's pleasing to my Father? Or do I talk about the commandments of the Lord and I talk a good talk, but when it comes time to actually patterning my life, I can't be bothered to pattern my life according to the way that the Lord instructs me. So what do I use as the standard for what I aspire to? Do I look at God's commandments and say, I aspire to live my life according to this pattern Or do I look at at everyone else in the world and say, I want to be like everybody else. I want to do what everybody else does. I want to live how everybody else lives. I want to behave how everybody else behaves. I want to go to the places that everyone else goes. I want to value the things that everyone else values. Do I spend my time looking at the latest influencers on on TikTok and Instagram and, and all these pictures of the latest fashions and the latest places that they're going and the latest things that they're eating and the latest things that they're driving and the latest things that they're buying and what's the latest makeup trend and what's the latest game that's out there and what's the latest, all of these viral trends that go on. This is how I pattern my life? Or do I look at the commandment of God and say, this is what I ought to be doing. This is what I ought to be seeking. This is what I ought to be desiring to do. It's not just about knowing the commandment of God. Actually, both of the sons knew the commandment of God. And initially, one of them said, you know, I'm not going to do this. But when he evaluated himself, he said, no, I should honor my father 
by doing what's pleasing to my Father. But the passage also gives us some hope that, okay, maybe we've rejected like the first son. We said, you know, I'm not going to do this. But when we come to ourselves, we still have an opportunity to say, you know, no, what my Father commands is right. And even if I'm not convinced, but because I honor my Father and because I love my Father, I'm going to obey His commandments. And beyond that, Christ continues and tells the Pharisees that He was reprimanding. Even when you saw the tax collectors and harlots accepting the preaching of repentance of John, you still did not come to yourselves in turn. So we have many opportunities to come to ourselves and say, you know what, I'm not going to be affiliated with this world, but I'm going to do and obey the commandments of my Father. We can honor the Lord also by respecting His house. We read in John chapter 2, which we read on Jonah's feast, and he, found them in the temp- and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So what we see here is Christ telling the people who were buying and selling and and converting money in the temple, don't make the place of spiritual investment a place of worldly investment. The house of God is somewhere different. It has its honor. It's holy. And as we've said before, the word holy means that it's set aside for a purpose. It's set aside for the purpose of worshiping God. It's not common like every other place. The house of God is a place where we come to make spiritual investments. But the money changers and those that were buying and selling took the place where they ought to have been making spiritual investments and they turned it into a marketplace, a place where they were making worldly investments. So also we do sometimes. You're going to tell me, I wonder, but we don't come and we don't buy and sell and we're not trading and we're not, we're not converting money or doing anything. But let's evaluate ourselves when we're in the house of God. And where is our mind working? Where are we investing our energy and our time and our concentration when we're in the house of the Lord? Are we spending our time and our energy and our concentration planning the rest of our day, planning the rest of our week, thinking about the stock market, thinking about the next task that I ought to do at work, thinking about what I need to do to get ahead in my job? Maybe there's a promotion opportunity and I'm sitting in church thinking about what's the next strategic move that I need to make in order to make myself a viable candidate for this promotion? Am I thinking about my exams and my classes and what do I need to do to be at the top of my class and what do I need to do to uh, impress my, my professors? Am I thinking about my next investment opportunity? Is Bitcoin going up? Is it Bitcoin going down? Is the market going up? Is the market going down? Is it the right time to sell stock and buy gold because it's more stable? Is this what I'm occupying my mind with? Am I investing my time and my energy and my effort in, in worldly investments? Or is my heart and my mind and my attention focused on the sacrament that's being offered? Am I looking at the fact that Christ descended from the glory of heaven and entered into our world and offered Himself on the cross and He's offering me His body and His blood on the altar and saying, come, Eat this. Forget about the cares 
of the world and spend some time with me here in my house, which is the symbol of my presence among you, the place where heaven and earth meet. And for a moment, take out of your mind the worldly things, the earthly things, and think about what it's going to be like in heaven. Think about what it means that the angels stand continuously before me, praising and worshiping. Thinking, think about the images of heaven that you see in, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, in Ezekiel, in Isaiah, in Revelation, where people saw heaven open in front of their eyes. And imagine that this is where you're going. And spend just a few moments out of your week ignoring what's outside of these walls and focusing on heaven and investing your time and your energy there. This is how we can honor the Lord, by respecting His house and respecting the sacraments that are performed and offered in His house. We can honor the Lord also by revering His sacrifice. When you fly into San Antonio, you hear these like recorded announcements in the airport right, from the mayor. And, and one of the things he says is, Welcome to Military City, USA. Right? We have a big military presence here. And so, like veterans are, are very visible in our community. And actually, in American society, we honor the servicemen and veterans. We have Veterans Day. We have Memorial Day. In the U.S. and elsewhere, right, there's the, the monument to the unknown soldier. Right? This is common not only in the U.S., but in many other countries. We honor those people. Why? Because, as we say, they made the ultimate sacrifice, right? They, they gave up their lives in order to protect and defend our freedoms. Well, what about Christ? And Christ made the ultimate sacrifice. Like He descended from heaven, He came to the earth, and He died not to defend our freedom from a worldly enemy who can only have power over us for a time, temporally, but from an eternal enemy, a spiritual enemy, who was oppressing us and would continue to oppress us for eternity and would take our freedom from us for eternity. And so, should we not also honor the sacrifice that He made for us and consider this as something deserving of our reverence? We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, St. Paul tells them, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The message of the cross without the understanding of what was achieved through the cross is very confusing. It doesn't make any sense. Why do you worship this man who was punished as a criminal and, and slaughtered in the most humiliating way? But when we realize that this was the sacrifice that he made to free us from the oppressor, all of a sudden it makes sense. And we recognize that no, we ought to honor the Lord by showing reverence to the sacrifice that he made. This ties in then to the next point. Oftentimes, when somebody makes such a big sacrifice or somebody is fighting for a cause 
and they, they die either fighting for that cause or they die prematurely, we find out that like foundations are established and, 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 and trusts are built. And in universities, they make like these memorial scholarships to remember the effort and commemorate the memory of the person who was fighting for this cause. And so in order to honor their legacy, we establish these foundations and these institutions and we make scholarships and we, we do fundraising to honor the memory of the one who departed by continuing to pursue and fight for the cause that they fought for and that they loved. So what is the cause that was dear to Christ that he died for? It's our salvation and the salvation of everyone. And so if we want to honor the Lord, as we honor those that depart from this world, we ought to continue to try and strive to achieve the legacy that he came to establish, which is we ought to be fighting for the salvation, not only of our own salvation, but the salvation of all of God's children. In Matthew chapter 25, we read, And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Serving God's children is serving Him directly. Bringing His message to the downtrodden, those that are, that are missing Him, is something that we do to honor Him and to honor His memory and to honor His legacy. We also see in 2 Timothy, I thank God when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded also is, is in you also. So we see from this passage that the right and upright faith is transmitted generally, generationally. So in addition to serving God's people, we honor God by transmitting the faith faithfully from the generation before us from whom we received the faith to the generation after us to whom we're accountable to transmit the faith. The faith that we received is a trust. God gave it to us and we received it from the church. And we owe a debt of gratitude to God and to His church that He gave us this faith and that those before us labored and emptied themselves so that we could receive the faith in its fullness. Those fathers, the patriarchs, the, the, the bishops, the clergy that came before us, the Sunday school servants, the parents, the, the older generation that sacrificed so much entirely worked to implant us in the church so that we could receive the faith and know God and have a relationship with Him, do we not owe them and do we not owe God to, transmate, to, to, to transmit as faithfully this faith to the next generation to build the posterity so that they can have life as we received life from the generation before us? This is the way that we honor the Lord, that we take the faith that we received from our fathers and transmit it faithfully to our children and not just our children in the flesh, because those that served us were not only our, our bodily parents, our fleshly parents, but we were served by so many that were related to us and that were not related to us. And so we owe also and we ought also to serve as many as we can to transmit faithfully the faith that we received. So to recap, we ought to honor the Lord. And we can do this by obeying His commandments not just by word, but in action. And even it's more important to obey the commandment by action than by word. We should respect His house as the place where heaven and earth meet and the place 
where we have an opportunity to exclude everything else and focus on him. We revere the sacrifice that he made on our behalf, that he died for our freedom. And so we honor that he died for our freedom and we respect the sacrifice that he made. And we demonstrate this by serving his children and transmitting the faith that we received from the generation before us, before us as a faithful trust that transmit to the generation after us. May God grant us all the strength to honor him in all that we do, and glory be to our God forever. Amen. May, uh... This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart, and we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ. One God, Amen. Many happy returns. Today is the fifth Sunday of the Great Lent period, and we read uh, the Gospel reading that many of us are familiar with, the healing of the paralytic at the Pool of Bethesda, which had five porches. We'll focus our contemplation together today, though, on the Pauline epistle, which came from Second Thessalonians chapter 2. We read, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And so we see here actually a common theme in the readings, both the Pauline and the Catholic epistle, is this idea of the second coming and the day of judgment and being ready and prepared for this day. And we see that the end of times is going to be characterized by the coming of the lawless one and the spreading of deception and lies. And that the remedy for this, the way to protect ourselves from this spread of uh, deception and lying wonders is to receive the love of the truth. So we'll contemplate together on three deceptions that are commonly spread have been commonly spread for, for ages, but are commonly spread in the current time. And the first the deception or the first lie is the idea that God doesn't care what you believe, that everybody can be saved regardless of, of what they believe. The next one is that God doesn't care what you do. As long as you have the right faith, you can do what you want, and it doesn't matter. God doesn't care. You can be saved just on the basis of your faith alone without anything else. And the third lie is that the church does not have any authority. And this one is particularly prominent in the current age and it comes with the abolition of the truth as we'll discuss. So we look at the first lie that God doesn't care about what you believe. And we'll look at some biblical examples to help us understand that no, what we believe is significant and important. We look, for example, at the story of Cornelius, which is recounted for us in Acts chapter 10, who was a Gentile centurion. And we've taken a couple of verses out of his story from, from near the beginning and from near the end. And we see that the man was praying, and an angel appeared to him and said, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. So we hear and we understand that the man was in a way, he was a righteous man, certainly in what he did. 
he stood and he prayed and he gave alms. And the angel is attesting that these were seen and recognized and acknowledged by the Lord. And then we read about the, the, the story shifts then to St. Peter, who at the time of prayer went up onto the rooftop and he saw a sheet brought down with all kinds of animals on it. And he understood that he was being called to go to Cornelius and ultimately to baptize the Gentiles. And we read this, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. So Cornelius sent his servants to St. Peter, and the servants said this. And so we read then, in the words of the servants, we have that the, the attestation of the angel that Cornelius was a prayerful man, that he was offering alms, and that these were recognized by the Lord. And the servants themselves say, he fears God, he's a just man, so he exercises just, justice. He has a good reputation among all of the Jews. So this good reputation comes from his upright action. But what, what happened? He was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house. For what? To hear words from you. To be instructed in the correct faith. To be taught the right way of the belief in Christ. And ultimately to be baptized. And we see that after the instruction of St. Peter, the Holy Spirit descended on Cornelius and his family, and then they were baptized and they were accepted into the faith. So his good works alone were not sufficient to save him. We look also at uh, the case of um, the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Silas were bound in jail and there was a great earthquake and the, the, the doors of the prison were swung open and the Philippian jailer almost killed himself because he thought that the prisoners had fled. Uh, but he found Paul and Silas there, and they said, no, no, don't harm yourself. We're all here. And he, he fell to the ground. What did he say? And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So, so they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your, your whole household. The first thing they told him is, believe. Have the correct and upright faith. Now, we know this wasn't the end of the story. They, they were preached with the correct teaching of Jesus Christ. His family was, was baptized. But the first step was, was belief. He didn't tell him, like, free us from the prison, treat the prisoners well, go do good things. The first thing he told him was believe, have the upright faith. We have another example also in Acts chapter 18 of a figure that maybe some of us are familiar with, Apollos. Apollos was a man, a, a, a learned man from Alexandria. We read about him. Now a certain Jew named Apollos came to Ephesus. He spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord. So he was teaching correctly what he was teaching. And then it continues to say, though he knew only the baptism of John. The baptism of John was a baptism of repentance because St. John the Baptist came preaching and teaching a baptism of repentance. That is, Apollos didn't have, he was not correctly instructed in all of the way of the faith and he didn't understand the baptism, the Holy Trinity for, for the renewal, taking off the old man and putting on the new man. What do we hear? Although the man was preaching and he was teaching, he was ministering, which is a good, a good work. 
When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Yes, he believed and he was preaching and he was doing good things, but they, they needed to correct his faith to make sure that his faith was precise and accurate. So we see through these examples and many other biblical situations in which the role of faith is important. God cares what we believe. God cares what we believe. So how do we bring this then to our current context? Many times we're faced with this conundrum. Can God really condemn people who are so good? I I know so many people and they do so many good things and they do so many good deeds. Does God really care if they believe? Does it really matter if, if, if they have if, if they have the right faith, how can God say that these people are, are not going to be accepted? They do things better than me. Beloved, we're not here in a role of condemning, but we look at what God says. Okay, you can do good actions, you can do good deeds for many different reasons, but if your good deeds are not rooted in the correct and the upright faith, then how can these lead to salvation? So then if we have this understanding... What then becomes our role? Our role becomes like that of St. Peter. Our role becomes like that of Paul and Silas with the Philippian jailer. Our role becomes like that of Priscilla and Aquila with Apollos. To instruct people in the way of the faith more accurately. If we see people around us and they're behaving well and they're they're, they're acting in, in a godly way, but we know that there's something lacking in their faith, then how will these people learn the correct faith unto their salvation? If we received the correct faith from the church and we're not willing to share it, we don't speak up. So here the responsibility becomes on us to share the correct faith for the sake of the salvation of those who are behaving in a way that demonstrates that maybe they, they, they care about the kingdom of God. When we have an opportunity here to be part of God's work and part of God's mission and ministry here in the world. What is the second deception? Not that God doesn't care what you believe, but that God doesn't care what you do. Just believe. If you have the upright belief, if you, if you believe the right thing, you believe in God, then salvation comes from God. There's not anything that you can do to earn salvation. There's no. It doesn't come with any weight or responsibility on you because you've believed and so you have the correct faith and there's nothing else that's needed. We read in James chapter 2, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. I want you to pay attention to to this passage. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? I I don't know how more clear the Bible can be here that it takes more than just faith to be saved. We have to live according to that faith. He says even the, the demons believe in God. So, but they're not saved because their, their, their action and their relationship with God is not upright. So how do we demonstrate our faith? We demonstrate our faith through 
correct, upright, godly action. And here we talk about both participating in the sacraments, which is something that we do and is necessary for our salvation. We participate in the salvific sacraments. Why? Because it represents our acceptance of the work of salvation and, cra- and grace that was done on our behalf when Christ was lifted up onto the cross. We need to participate with, with him in this sacrifice. How? By the renewal of ourselves taking off the old man and putting on the new man and dying and rising again with Christ in the baptismal font and by partaking of his body and blood on the altar and by confessing our sins so that they can be forgiven. And then the other aspect of our upright behavior and and working according to our faith is in moral action. And in our moral action, this can be kind of subdivided into two things. One, our godly conduct. How I carry myself. How do I behave as a Christian person when no one's looking, when no one is, is scrutinizing what I do in my inner room, when nobody is paying attention to me, do I try to abide by a godly canon way of life? And also then secondly, how do I treat others? Do I reflect God's love to others and treat people with the love of God that I received? How do I interact with people? This all constitutes then godly works, the work of the sacraments. How I carry myself when no one is looking, am I abiding by God's commandments in front of God before in front of people and treating my brethren in a way that reflects the love of God. And finally, my beloved, we look at the third deception, and maybe this one is prominent in this day and age, which is that the church does not have any authority to tell me how I ought to live, what I ought to do, what I ought to believe. This is not the role of the church. Everybody can believe and and do what they want. And in this day and age, this belief stems from ultimately the the misconceived notion that there is no absolute truth. Everybody has their own truth. Truth is relative. Truth is about what makes me feel good and what feels right to me. This is my truth and everybody has their own truth. This idea and this teaching is very prominent in this day and age. But we look to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and St. Paul instructs St. Timothy and says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. My beloved, the church is not merely a human institution. It's not merely a gathering of people that come together with a common purpose. But it is the ground and the pillar of the truth. It is the center of truth that God implanted in the, wor- in the world. And so we approach the church. I don't hear talk about the building, but the church as the body of Christ, as the institution that comprises all of the church, the whole hierarchy of the church and all of the believers together. And we understand that the church is the place where we come for the interpretation, the explanation, and the true understanding of the truth that God is teaching. And what makes the church the ground and the pillar of truth is that it is God's church. It's not a church that's headed by any individual or even by any group of of people. 
But this group of people that leads the church are those that God appointed to administer his church here. The headship of the church lies with God. So this is where we find the godly truth. We have to, my beloved, in, in our lives, distinguish between what I like and what, I, what is true. So if what I like is not true, then I have to abandon what I like in favor of the truth. And if the truth is not according to my tastes, is not according to what I like, doesn't go with what I want, doesn't go with what's popular or trendy in the contemporary time, that I have to abandon the fads for the sake of truth. Because what I like can't save me. My, my moods and the fads of society are not salvific. But the truth is what will set us free. So we have to pursue truth at all costs. As we read in St. John chapter 8, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. St. Augustine contemplates on the church and says, Therefore, beloved, with assured mind and steadfast heart, let us continue to live under so lofty a head in so glorious a body. This lofty head is Christ, and the glorious body is His church, in which we are mutually members. Thus, even if my absence were as far as the most distant lands, we should be together in Him and we should never withdraw from the unity of His body because this is where salvation is. So we review together the first deception that's being commonly spread is that it doesn't matter what you believe, but we have to understand that correct faith is the gateway to our salvation. But not only faith, godly works are an expression of this faith and they represent our persistence in the way of faith. And the truth that leads us to salvation is revealed to us through the church. May God give all of us to recognize and fight against the deceptions of the evil one and glory be to our God forever. Amen. This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart. And we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.